Well, our, our sermon passage this morning is a short one. Uh, it's Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. And if you have a Bible there in front of you, if you want to turn there, Mark 1, verses 14 to 15. It's also printed on the uh, back of your bulletin. And I'll ask that you stand for God's uh, holy word this morning. Mark chapter 1. It says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass weathers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's ask God to bless his word to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel there uh, contained in it. And we ask that you would uh, open our eyes. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. Work in us by your spirit. Give us understanding. Help us to, uh, to anyone here that doesn't yet know you, that they would repent and believe in the gospel just like our Lord says. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you, if you haven't been here the whole time, or if you have, or even if you're not familiar with the book of Mark, um, back in verses 9 to 11, uh, a little while back we looked at that, uh, and Mark told us there of, of Christ's baptism by John the Baptist there in the Jordan River, and what that amounted to was the, uh, was the anointing of the Messiah. You might know the word Messiah means the anointed one, the chosen one. It was really the anointing of the Messiah with the Holy Spirit. Upon his baptism there, it was kind of setting him apart officially for his office as our Messiah, our Redeemer. Uh, in the verses after that, verses 12 through 13, right after that it says that Jesus was driven by that same Holy Spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. Well, here in our text, verses 14 to 15, what we're, what we're getting here, what Mark is showing us, is in a sense the official beginning of Jesus' public ministry as the Messiah and as our Redeemer. So what we have here is you have Jesus going from a a place of isolation, a desolate place, a dangerous place, a place of temptation in private, so to speak. It's kind of mano-a-mano in some sense between him uh, and Satan. And now he's going into the open. Now he's officially starting to minister openly and publicly to the crowds in the city and and area of of Galilee. And what what does Mark show Jesus doing? He gives us a very brief introduction to what Christ is doing in his public ministry. What do we find Jesus doing there? What does Mark show us? What does Mark focus on? He focuses on Jesus preaching. In the rest of the chapter, he does go into things as we're going to see as we go on. Uh, Jesus healing people, Jesus casting out demons, commanding them to come out, and they come out. Uh, Calling the disciples, which we'll get to next time uh, when he calls uh, some of the disciples who would become the apostles. But primarily, what does he do? In the middle of all that, he preaches. He preaches. Uh, Jesus preached, uh, as we saw in verse 14, he proclaimed the gospel of of God. He preached or proclaimed the gospel of God. And we're going to see at least three things this morning from our brief text. We're going to see first the arrival of the king. The arrival of the king. Secondly, the authority of the king. And then thirdly, the announcement of the king. So the arrival, the authority, and the announcement of the king. Well, first, the, the arrival of the king. Now, 
maybe you're thinking, this isn't, we're not at the triumphal entry yet. That's, that's way later on in the book of Mark, and you, you would be correct. But in a sense, he is announcing that the king has arrived, that he is, is there. You know, Mark chapter 11 deals with the triumphal entry. We think of that on Palm Sunday, uh, the week before, the Sunday before Easter Sunday. Um, you don't see in Galilee, nobody's lining the streets, nobody's laying palm branches down, nobody's shouting Hosanna uh, in the highest uh, to the Messiah. Um, but if, as we look at what, Je- what Mark tells us in these verses, these two verses, and what Jesus himself is, uh, is saying there, he is letting the people know that the king has arrived. That's really what his message boils down to in its essence. And that the timing, Mark, you know, Mark's very brief, very clipped. He doesn't give a lot of details. So one of the things you'll notice about Mark in his writing is when he does give you a detail, it should make us pay attention a little bit more. He leaves so much out, not, nothing essential, but he leaves so many details out that we might want to fill in by looking at Matthew and Luke and John. But when he does give us a detail, it, it, it should get our attention. It should make us sit up and take notice. And one of the things that, that Mark does is he points out the timing of, of the start of Jesus' public ministry. It wasn't just after his baptism. It wasn't just after his temptation. He says there in verse 14 that it was, quote, after John, John the Baptist, after John was arrested. Now, that's when Jesus came into Galilee. That's when Jesus started preaching the gospel of God. Why was John the Baptist arrested? Mark doesn't really give us those details. I'll fill in some blanks from from the other gospels. But um, what did John do? What did we find John doing back in verses 4 through 8? He was baptizing John the Baptist, right? But what was, he, what, was his, what was the main thing that he was doing? Preaching. It says in verse uh, 4 of Mark chapter 1, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John was preaching. and He was preaching something that sounds a lot like that reading that, that Dan read from the book of Isaiah. I mean, John really is in the line of the Old Testament prophets. He preached a, a, a message of repentance to the Lord and forgiveness of sins in his name. So, John, uh, Mark here doesn't really tell us exactly why John was in prison, but I think he, he assumes that we would understand, at least in part, that it was related to his preaching ministry. It was related to the one thing he was doing, the one thing that we know he did. Matthew uh, chapter 14, verses 3 to 4 fills in some of the blanks there. It says that Herod seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. John was, John was meddling. John was getting into someone's uh, private uh, business there. John, think about that. John the Baptist, this prophet of the Lord, a forerunner of the Messiah, uh, wasn't afraid to call even those in high office to repentance. We often, I think, in our day, think of, of uh, that's out of bounds. Uh, John didn't seem to think that was out of bounds at all. The thing he thought was out of bounds was Herod's sin. He called Herod, in the name of the Lord, to repent. And Matthew goes on to tell us in verse 10 of that same chapter uh, that Herod had John beheaded. He had John the Baptist beheaded. That was how John was Martyred. So you can be sure that Herod 
the Tetrarch didn't exactly like the idea of someone proclaiming another king, which is what John did. And he also didn't like him criticizing himself and his uh, sins. Now, when, so when Mark tells us that Jesus started to preach after John was arrested, he's doing a couple things here, even if it's briefly. I think he's reminding you and I and his original readers of the reality of persecution for the work of the gospel. That the gospel will not go unopposed. It, it will be successful. God will make disciples through it. He will change lives and save a multitude of sinners. But Satan won't just sit on the sidelines. That same Satan, the same evil one, that tempted Christ in the wilderness would oppose the work of the gospel wherever it was to be found. And secondly, I think what he's doing here is he's kind of foreshadowing for us what's going to happen later on in the gospel. That Jesus himself... Uh, would face uh, suffering, persecution, and even death uh, for, his, for his people. After all, what happened? John preached. And what happened to John? Persecution, even martyrdom. Jesus preaches all through the book of, of Mark, all through the gospel. And persecution was certainly going to find him, even crucifixion. Now, the Greek word for proclaiming there, or preaching, in case we're not sure of the connection that, that Mark is making, is the exact same word that used, uh, Mark used back in verse 14 to describe what Jesus was doing. The same thing. John preached or proclaimed. Jesus preached and proclaimed. Uh, and just in case we might be tempted to think that that was a, a fluke, that this is just kind of one of those details that just happened to happen at this time, um, that it wasn't a characteristic of the ministry of Jesus, his public ministry, um, later on in this very same chapter, in verse 38 of Mark chapter 1, this is what Jesus tells his disciples. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. So many people are, are coming around him. The crowds are coming. And this is what he says. Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. And that is why I came out in the ESV. Think about that. You know, we would do just the opposite. You know, we'd see the crowds coming. We've got to strike while the iron's hot, Jesus. The crowds are huge. This is where it is. And Jesus doesn't want any part of it. He's like, the reason I came out here, the reason I came here was to preach the gospel everywhere I went. He wasn't content to stay in one place and build, build his little empire there. He wanted to preach the gospel everywhere where God, his Father, had called him to do. Now, so preaching was such an important aspect of Jesus' ministry, his public ministry and his mission, that he could actually say, that's why I came. That was his purpose, the purpose of his earthly public ministry. Now, the, the cross and the resurrection are central. That's the reason he came. He came to save his people from our sins. But the primary aspect of his public ministry really was preaching. And Mark points that out to us in more than one way, in more than one place. You might remember I said that Mark doesn't give us the, the content very often. He doesn't give us the Sermon on the Mount, for example. He, he, he kind of, um, it's like a Reader's Digest version sometimes. He condenses what Jesus says and gives you the, the, the essence of it or the nugget of it. Um, but he does take the time to point out to us that preaching was central to Christ's public Ministry, And it really is central still to the public ministry of Christ's church. The, the ministry of Christ that goes on in the church today uh, primarily is to consist 
of, of preaching, just like it was in his own public ministry. Now, now Mark doesn't point this out to us, um, but Jesus also, he does point out that Jesus went to Galilee, doesn't he? He doesn't leave that out. He doesn't say Jesus went someplace. And he just went out someplace. It doesn't matter where. He went to Galilee. Well, Matthew, in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 17, uh, Matthew points out explicitly that this was a fulfillment of messianic prophecy. We think of some of the other things that, that might seem like a bigger deal. But Jesus' preaching in Galilee in particular was prophesied uh, in Isaiah's uh, book, in Isaiah 9, 1 to 2. Matthew 4, verses 12 to 17, it says, Now when he, he, Jesus, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, and he quotes it, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and, those, uh, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And then what, is, what does uh, Matthew say? From that time, Jesus began to preach. Same, same thing happening in our text. Saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So you've got Matthew and Mark both telling us that the essence of Christ's message, which he preached everywhere, consisted in repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Almost word for word, the same thing that he says here in Mark Chapter 1, verse 15. So, Jesus going into Galilee was a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. It was the dawning of a great light, the light of the world shining upon sinners in a very dark place. The king took the time to go all the way to Galilee before heading to Jerusalem. He didn't just go for the biggest city he could find. He didn't just go for the most important city. He also included Galilee out on the outskirts. And we're going to see in the verses that follow next time, he even shows some of the most well-known disciples and apostles in that backwoods place, that obscure, seemingly obscure place of Galilee. He picked some of the apostles there. Well, before we get to the announcement, the message of the king, we need to spend a little bit of time on the authority of the king. That's something Mark emphasizes throughout the chapter and throughout the book. What's a king if he doesn't have authority? Jesus King Jesus is not a figurehead. Uh, Mark goes on to emphasize the authority of King Jesus throughout the remainder of this chapter and throughout the book. In verses 16 to 20, what do you see there? You see Jesus calling upon Peter and Andrew and James and John. And what does he call them to do? I won't preach that text ahead of time, but he tells them basically, drop everything and follow me. I see you're busy. I see you're at your job. You're fishing. Okay, stop that. Drop the nets and follow me. And what did they do? They dropped the nets and they followed him. In, in the case of James and John, they even left their father behind. Think about that. That should stun you. When you read that text, we're so familiar with it. I know since I was a little kid, you're taught these, these uh, stories. Maybe you've heard it and read it so many times, it's like, well, of course they did. That's James and John and and uh, Simon and Andrew, that's, what, that's their job. That's, they're special. They, they were special in a sense. They were called by Christ. Normal people don't drop everything and follow someone that they, they've never met before. Jesus says, 
Come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And that's exactly what they did. That's authority. That's, that's beyond the normal uh, authority even of a, of, a, of a powerful speaker or preacher. That's divine authority being exercised. He says it and it happens. Verses 21 and 22, Jesus there is preaching in a synagogue on the Sabbath. And what was the reaction of the crowds? What does Mark take the time to point out? It says uh, there that uh, they were astonished at his teaching. When's the last time you were astonished at someone's teaching? Not here, right? Uh, and why, why was that? What was it about Jesus teaching and preaching? I mean, think about what the word astonished means. And they were floored. They were like, what is this? Um, what does it say? In verse 22, it says uh, that it was because, quote, he taught them as one who had what? Authority and not as the scribes. You know, I don't, we're not sure exactly what that means, but, you know, it's the difference between, uh, in some sense, someone speaking in the place of the lawgiver and the, and, and the person who originated the message and the actual person whose message it is. They came in someone else's name. In a sense, Jesus came in his own name. It was his message that he brought. When he preached the law, he wasn't preaching someone else's law. He pre- it was his. It's like the author of the book coming to tell you about, about his, his message. He preached with authority. It wasn't just the style. It wasn't that Jesus had some remarkable preaching style, although maybe he did. It was, there was something about it, and that something was authority. And then in verses 23 to 28, Jesus is confronted with a man who was possessed by, quote, an unclean spirit. And notice even the words of that demon show that he recognized the power and authority of Jesus Christ. What does he say in verse 24? He cries out, have you come to what? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demon recognized who he was dealing with and showed his uh, authority in that. Not only that, but when Jesus commanded that unclean spirit to be silent and come out of him, what did he do? He did exactly what he was told. He was quiet and came out of him. And what did the people in that synagogue think when they saw that happen? They didn't miss the point either. Verse 27, it says uh, that they were amazed. It's probably an understatement. It says, and they, were, they asked among themselves, here it is, what is this? A new teaching with what? Authority. Sounds like a theme. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Word got out pretty quick. Jesus might have been in the backwoods of, of the region of Galilee, but pretty soon crowds started following him around. Verses 29 to 45, all the way to the end of chapter 1, Jesus showed that he had power and authority to heal diseases as well. He healed Simon's mother-in-law, and then people started bringing him, quote, all who were sick or oppressed by demons, verse 32. He heals one person, and all of a sudden, everybody is bringing everybody they can think of to Jesus. Mark goes on, uh, goes as far as to say that the whole city, verse 33, the whole city was being gathered together at the door. Sounds like a busy house. And Jesus is there healing one person, and all of a sudden they open the door, and half the town is there, bringing everybody who's sick or oppressed by demons. Last but not least, verses 40 to 45, Jesus heals a man with leprosy. Even the man's posture, when he approached Christ, spoke of his authority. He says the leper did what? Came to him, imploring him, and kneeling. He kneeled before 
Christ. After Jesus healed him, he told him not to tell anyone. Verse 44, but the man seems like he couldn't help himself. He's really the one person in the whole chapter that disobeys the king. Jesus says, you know, go show the priest that you're clean. You're okay now, but don't tell anybody. Don't go spend, and he spread the word anyway. He couldn't wait to tell everybody what Jesus did for him. So much so, it says that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town. That, that healed leper spread the news so far and wide, Jesus couldn't go anywhere. Even in Galilee, he couldn't go anywhere. Mark covers a lot of ground in this first chapter, and a lot of that ground is covered to show us the authority of the king to show us the import of these words that Jesus says in verse 15, when he says the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, The kingdom of God was at hand because the king was at hand. That's who was there. That's who they were dealing with. And that brings us to the third point, our final point, the announcement or the message of the king. What was the message that Jesus preached? What was the message that you saw from that quote from Matthew's gospel that was typical of Jesus preaching. You could think of it as a summary of Jesus' usual message. Verse 14 says that he preached, quote, the gospel of God. The gospel of God. Now it's the gospel of God in that God himself is the source of that gospel. God himself is the source of that gospel. The good news of Christ, the gospel, is not a human invention. It's not a human philosophy. It's not a human way of life. It's not invented by anyone else. Nobody, nobody would have come up with the gospel, the biblical gospel, on their own. It's not that kind of message. Uh, nobody would have come up with the, with the biblical gospel in a million lifetimes. You could give us all the time in history. No one on their own would have come up with a gospel like the one you find in the pages of Scripture, It runs contrary to every inclination of the human heart of fallen man. The gospel might be the most counterintuitive message in the history of humanity, if you really understand it correctly. Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 to 12, the Apostle Paul is defending his ministry in the gospel, and he says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it during, uh, through a revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, I went to seminary, Dan's going to seminary. In a sense, you could say we're being taught the gospel. Paul's saying, I didn't get this from uh, preacher school. I got this from Christ. I wasn't taught it. I didn't receive it from someone else. This is a divine message. It's a message from Christ Himself, Paul's gospel, the same gospel Christ preached, the same one that we preach, the same one Isaiah preached, frankly, was, is not man's gospel. We don't receive it from man. It wasn't taught by a man. Uh, it was received directly from Christ himself. The true biblical gospel is, again, it's not an invention of any man. It's not according to mankind's principles. After all, the gospel is not a message of salvation by works. It's not a message of salvation that's partly by works. It's not a message of salvation where you save yourselves. The gospel says that sinners are saved by Christ himself alone. We don't save ourselves. We don't help save ourselves. Uh, We don't, uh, it doesn't say, the gospel doesn't say you can do this and we can help. Or that Jesus can do it and you can help. 
It's that Jesus Christ himself saves. It's Christ alone, by God's grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. Salvation is all the work of God in Christ. We aren't in control of it. We aren't in control of it. We can't add anything to it. And we can't save ourselves. The gospel does not save us by lowering God's standards. The gospel doesn't come to us by reducing God's holiness or by minimizing your sins or my sins. That's what false gospels do. False gospels come to you and say, it's not that bad. You're not that bad. Or God's not really that holy. Or some combination of the two. That's what false gospels try to do. They try to put salvation within your grasp, within your ability, within your control. Rather, the the gospel found in in the scriptures and the word of God tells us that there's an infinite chasm, there's an infinite gap between sinful man and a holy God. And if we are to be saved, it must be by the work of an infinite Savior paying the infinite price for our sins in our place on the cross. That's what the biblical gospel focuses on. Notice again that it's not until verse 15 of chapter 1 that we finally hear Jesus himself speaking. Seems like everybody's talking but Jesus until verse 15. You've got John the Baptist. You've got the voice from heaven. And now in verse 15, you finally have Jesus himself speaking. You know, it's as if, it's as if Mark's trying to build up our anticipation. What's Jesus going to be like? What's he going to say? You know, in doing it this way, it's as if he's building up what we should be expecting. We should be giving extra weight to these words. His first words of Christ in the Gospel of Mark. And because they're his first words, any words of Christ are significant, but his first words, which are also typical, we see, of what he preached, should make us sit up and take notice. His first words were very typical of what his ministry was on this earth. They're a summary of his message. And what did he say in verse 15? It's pretty short. It's pretty short. It says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So Jesus makes a very bold announcement. His announcement includes uh, what you might call proclamation, news, and it also includes what you might think of as application, what we're to do in response to that news. His proclamation is essentially Two things, or it's one thing in two parts. And his admonition is the same way as well. It's really one message in two parts. First, his proclamation is twofold, and that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. What does it mean that the time is fulfilled? What was he saying to the crowds there in Galilee? What he's saying, if you want to boil the whole thing down, he's saying the long, long, long centuries upon centuries wait is over. Really, he's saying, if you want to boil it down, that the entire message of the Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, the thing that all those books of the Old Testament were pointing you to, it's now. It's hard to overestimate or overstate how big of a deal this is that he was telling them. The time had been fulfilled. And what, what what was that long wait about? What was that centuries upon centuries wait? All the prophecies of the Old Testament pointing forward to something else. What was it that had finally come and made that wait over? He says the kingdom of God was at hand. 
It's here. The thing you've all been waiting for, the thing your fathers, grandfathers, great-grandfathers, even the patriarchs were waiting for and anticipating was here. Now, what is the kingdom of God? That's one of those phrases you'll find all through the Gospels, phrases like that. And yet it can be kind of complicated or, or unclear to us what exactly that, that means. You know, defining the kingdom of God and the nature of that kingdom is one of those subjects that many godly men have disagreed upon over the years. And I'm not going to solve that, uh, that dilemma by any stretch of the imagination this, this morning. Uh, but I can give you the bare minimum. I can give you the, the bare minimum of what Jesus is saying here, the essentials or essence of what he's saying here, and I can, uh, I can sum it up in four words. Remember, name that tune. I can name that tune in four notes. Well, I can sum up what Jesus is saying in four words. The king is here. The king is here. That's what he's saying. He's not the forerunner of the king. That was John the Baptist. Jesus shows up in Galilee and tells them, the wait's over the kingdom is at hand. Well, the kingdom is at hand because the king was here. He's, he's, in a sense, identifying himself to them as who he was and what he came to do. And what was Jesus, what was King Jesus' application for them? What did he call upon them to do in response to the fact that the end, or not the end, but that the wait was over and the king was here? What were they supposed to do in response to the arrival of the king? Did he tell the crowds to gather up an army? No. Did he tell them to take up arms and follow him? We're going to overthrow Rome's yoke from Jerusalem? No. That might have been what they would have expected him or hoped him to do. What did he tell them to do in verse 15? Repent and believe. Repent and believe the gospel. That's the message of Jesus here in verse 15. And really that's the message of Mark's gospel. If you read the whole Gospel of Mark and get nothing else out of it, although I hope that doesn't happen, get one thing out of Mark, repent and believe. You could say that's the message of the whole Bible, the same message Jesus preaches in verse 15. It's the message of, the central message of all of Scripture is repent and believe. This morning's call to worship, Psalm 2. I won't read it for you again. You could sum up Psalm 2. In some way, as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the Son, saying even to the rulers and kings, repent and believe. Repent and believe. Isaiah chapter 1 that Dan read this morning, where God took Israel to task, took Judah to task for their sin. Think about how that was a rough chapter in a lot of ways. If you put yourself in their shoes and you hear the Lord of Lords saying, I cannot bear iniquity and solemn assembly. What's he telling them? He's saying, you're going through all the right motions. It's, it's, it's kind of like saying, you're at the right church. You're doing all the right things, and I can't stand it. Your new moons, your Sabbaths, your sacrifices, I, I can't bear them. I don't want to look at them. I don't want to see them. And why did he say that? Because they were just going through motions. And what, was the, what were they called upon to do? Repent. Your iniquities have you know, made this a mess. Your iniquities have made your worship, even your sacrifices, something that God could not and would not bear. Now what does that tell us? It tells us that the message to repent and believe is for all kinds of people. It's not just for the bad people out there. It's not for the people that you think of 
when you think of, I don't know what you think of when you think of bad people, we really should think of the mirror, right? It starts here and ends, you know, it, it goes out there, but it's also for us as well. The message to repent and believe the gospel is the message. J.C. Ryle puts it this way, This is that old sermon which all the faithful witnesses of God have continually preached from the very beginning of the world. From Noah down to the present day, the burden of their address has always been the same, repent and believe. It's the message of Scripture. You know, and it sounds negative, doesn't it? I bet you when I say the word repent, your gut reaction, your, your gut level instinct is kind of a negative one. Oh, it sounds very uh, hellfire and brimstone maybe. It's, it sounds kind of old-fashioned. It might sound like you're telling someone off. But it, what, is, what does it say twice in our text, in, in Mark 1, 14 and 15? What does it call it? The gospel. Good news, twice, just in case we missed the point. In two verses, he calls it the gospel of God, uh, and that he preached the gospel. It's good news. The, the message of repentance and faith is a, is a good message. It's, it's, a, it's good news. It's a good announcement. God doesn't have to forgive anyone. And repentance, maybe, maybe it sounds like a bad message because we think of it wrongly. Repentance is not, I'm making up for my sins. Can our repentance merit God's forgiveness? Can it make up, you know, is, does God, is, is repentance a message of God having a big divine scale and here's your sins, you know, and do enough good things, turn your life around, reform your life, just enough, maybe God will forgive you. No. No. The, remember, the whole message of, of, of the gospel is Christ dying in our place. The suffering Savior dying on the cross to pay for our sins. Repentance, what is repentance? Really, all repentance is, is a turning from sin to God through Christ. Now, does, that, does it include a change of life? Certainly. Is it a prerequisite for salvation. No. That's not what it is at all. It's come to me and be saved. Well, sin is that way. Christ is this way. Coming to Christ means turning from those things. Turning from our sins. Turning from our false belief and idolatry. Turning from our thoughts of saving ourselves by our own good works. And turning to Christ by faith. The call to repentance and faith is the essence of the call of the good news of Christ. It's kind of two sides to, to one coin is really what it is. Repentance and faith. Turning from and turning to. Turning from sin, turning to Christ by faith. That's still the message of King Jesus today. He comes with a message of mercy. With a message that's good news some 2,000 years later. And your response and mine to that same message is to be to repent and believe in Christ the Savior and our King. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your son uh, not only came to preach the message of salvation, but he could only preach that because he came to accomplish it. That you sent him uh, to live in our place, the perfect life that we could never live, that we don't live, and to die in our place, to pay for the infinite price of our sins, and to rise again from the dead on the third day that we might know the price has been paid in full and that we too will live If we are in Christ, even if we die, we will live again as well. We ask that you would give us grace to be faithful to your message, the message that that your son preached, to repent and believe in the good news. Give us grace to, to be repenting and believing 
And we ask that if anybody here does not yet know you, that you would work in their hearts to open their eyes to the grace of, of you in the gospel, to repent and turn to your son by faith, that they might have life and forgiveness and all the blessings that we have in Christ in his name. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.